0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: All right, from Seventh Amendment issues, we go slightly higher up in the Constitution to First Amendment rights. As we're joined by constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. Uh, Case court revolving, a quick case court, English, Craig, a court case (laughs) involving a street preacher. Um, who was not in any violation of the law, but that wasn't seen, perhaps, that perspective by the El Paso police, and he was criminally charged for preaching. Let's get details now. Counselor, give us some background on this story.
2: Certainly. Uh, This gentleman uh, is a man who uh, was uh, first off, he has his uh, master's of divinity from uh, Southern Baptist Seminary in Lexington, Kentucky. He's very educated. He has his master's in philosophy. Um, he has a real heart to, to reach out and evangelize, and as he knows apologetics, uh, so he's out there in El Paso, downtown El Paso, on a public sidewalk, uh, preaching the gospel in um, you know in in a very positive, uh, understandable way. Well. A police officer uh, had a, had told him earlier, said, don't stand over here, instead stand here. So so he was standing at the place that he was earlier told uh, he should stand if he's going to preach by a police officer. <clears throat> well, then, two weeks later, uh, he is written up uh, with criminal charges against him uh, for allegedly preaching on private property, but so, it was a public...
1: So now this place where he was told by the police two weeks before to stand was, in fact, on public property.
2: Yes, it's originally private property, but there's an easement for sidewalks. And it is a sidewalk. It looks like a sidewalk. It's right next to this major downtown street. Uh, And in case law, uh, it says clearly that if it looks like a sidewalk, it acts like a sidewalk for First Amendment purposes, it is a sidewalk. Uh, and that's very important for people to understand so uh but nonetheless he, you know the the owner of the plaza didn't want him there, and uh that turn it turns out that the day that he was uh challenged by the police officer happened the same day that uh, there was um a uh, a, a drag queen uh, event taking place there at the theater it you know he's out there all the time he wasn't you know there just because of that, and he's a very loving man, but yet um that seemed to be what's Simulated the security and all to to call the police into to, to having stopped.
1: It's interesting story because they could have chosen any number of a pretext. They could have said you're disturbing the peace. Uh, if he was using amplification, could have said that you're violating you know our uh, our noise ordinance, something of that sort. But instead, they chose to to claim that he was doing this on private property, and with that, the El Paso police arrested him.
2: Yes, uh, that's exactly what happened, and. Uh, Yeah, he didn't even have any amplified speech, although he could have uh, legally. uh, But uh, he was just out there preaching, and he's such a nice guy that, uh, you know, when it came time for me to to represent him for the first hearing, I went ahead and brought him in to speak with the assistant district attorney, which is a little out of the norm. Usually you don't do that in a criminal defense case. But I wanted the, the assistant district attorney to get to know him and to understand him and realize what a huge mistake they were making uh the case was then transferred to a different assistant district attorney and uh, we, we provided the video of the police telling him where he can legally stand and the fact that he was standing there i thought this was going to be dismissed right away it went on for a month a month and finally craig we were getting close to trial this last in, in march and I went ahead and called uh, the new assistant DA who was handling the case, and I just told him, I said, look, um, this is going to trial. We're going to have a big press conference, uh, but as a matter of professional courtesy, I want to let you know that because if you're going to dismiss the charges and you dismiss the charges, then, of course, we won't have the press conference. And out as, of as, as courtesy and respect for you, I wanted to let you know about this. And so he, in two days, he had the, the charges completely uh uh,
1: dropped. See, that's the benefit of bringing out the big guns. <laughs> you know, no messing around. Went right to the top, and, and you knew exactly what to do. Uh, the dismissal of the charges, do you see that then as admission that they were wrong and that in the future Reverend Denton can continue to um, preach there on the street unmolested?
2: Oh, yes. Uh, in El Paso, yes. We... We've seen that we have seen other cities like Las Vegas and other places where we've had to come back again and again and um, you know and threaten civil civil action civil lawsuits. But uh, I think I think they've learned in El Paso uh, not to uh, to come against people preaching the gospel, and uh, I'm real pleased with that. So, but you know, at another case like this in San Antonio, and we may have to go back to San Antonio uh, in the future. So uh, it's you know, we're very busy across the country at Pacific Justice Institute. So uh, you're kind of changing
1: rights. the changing the phrase. It used to be "Don't mess with Texas." Now it must be "Don't mess with the Pacific Justice Institute."
2: Yes, and I think they understand that. And uh, one nice thing about Texas, I have a little bit of a of a PR more more PR political leverage because of the constituents in that state. I think are li- are little more sensitive when they hear of someone's religious freedom or free speech rights being
1: little um little different uh, trying a case like this in Texas versus California i would suspect well counselor we appreciate uh, your good work and the efforts of the Pacific Justice Institute to uh, get this motion to dismiss a move through and uh, the prosecutor wisely so deciding to uh, drop the criminal charges against reverend denton so he can continue to minister there in uh, el paso texas without any future harassment now if this case sounds familiar Maybe because you've been on the receiving end. Uh, You're listening and said, well, gee, the police chased me away. Uh, What about my rights? Well, if you think you have a case where your fundamental First Amendment religious freedom or First um, Amendment rights related to freedom of speech have been violated, the Pacific Justice Institute is there for you. You can give them a call at area code... I want to make sure I got the right number here cuz I don't want to give your cell phone out on the radio. What's your 800 number there, Brad?
2: Certainly, it's 916-857. 6,900. So
1: Excellent. Okay, that 9, was the number I was about to give out, but I wanted to make sure I wasn't telling people to you know call you at home at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> area code 916-857-6900. They work, of course, based out of uh, the Sacramento area, but they serve all across the the western states, and information available, too, on the web at pacificjustice.org. That's Pacific Justice. Dot O-R-G. And our thanks to the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, constitutional lawyer, Brad Dacus, for that update. Okay, speaking of updates, we're going to get an update for you on the upcoming Family Life Marriage Conference that will be taking place uh, in a couple of weeks. And that will be happening as we talk to Bob Lapine around the corner. To get around that corner... There you go. More music, please. (laughs) Music to drive to uh, traffic to. Let's get a look at uh, traffic. Nick Domenici's got the latest. Nick?
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Think for a moment about... The trajectory of your marriage relationship. You met, you courted for a while, eventually you decided to get married. You started careers, you began a family. Then along came all the responsibility. You know, things like caring for the kids, taking them to doctors, taking them to baseball practice, taking them to school, parent-teacher conferences, bills, all of that. And as you go along in life, somehow one day you suddenly wake up And have the very odd feeling that you really don't know the person that you're in a marriage relationship with. You feel as if maybe time and and a lot of substance perhaps in the midst of doing family and doing marriage has somehow slipped away. Or maybe your priorities have shifted and they're not exactly where you feel in your heart. And you know from what the word tells you, it's not exactly where you should be. How do you get back to the things that matter? How do you get back to rediscovering the joy of that beginning days of your marriage relationship? Well, with some insights about a very special event coming to the San Francisco Bay Area, we're joined by Bob Lapine. Bob, of course, no stranger to KFAX listeners. You hear him each morning here on KFAX as co-host of the Family Life Today broadcast. And you'll also recognize his voice as the on-air announcer for Truth For Life with Alistair Begg. And Bob, great to have you on the show.
3: Craig, always great to be with you. How
1: are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Hey, let's, let's talk for a minute about first kind of the, the, this, this spiral that seems to take place in every marriage relationship. I don't think anybody ever from the beginning sets out to fail. Nobody starts and says, well, we'll get married, we'll have some kids, then we'll get into a nasty divorce. I mean, we, nobody plans for that to happen, and yet sadly, oftentimes it does. And it just seems like the things of life get in the way, and all of a sudden you've really lost a grip on the things that matter.
3: Well, you've described it perfectly, and and what we say at our Weekend to Remember Marriage Getaways is that the natural drift in every marriage is a drift toward isolation. Rather than drifting together, we drift apart from one another, and there are reasons for that. We talk about them at the Weekend Getaway, but I think for couples to understand, when when you start to feel what you described so well— as this this sense of aloneness or what happened to the joy and the spark and how come we don't feel about each other the way we did when we were dating all of those things when you start to understand okay this is not unusual other couples experience this as well um, Hollywood's been lying to us about what this is supposed to look like, and and then you can once you recognize this is this is normal. Now we can help develop some strategies to help you deal with that natural drift and get you back toward what is the goal of marriage, which is oneness in your marriage relationship.
1: Now, Bob, there is, of course, this event coming to the San Francisco Bay Area. It'll be at the Hyatt Regency at the San Francisco Airport, April the 12th through the 14th. And this Family Life Marriage Weekend to Remember is an event that has ministered to over a million and a half people across the country. But when we say a marriage getaway, um, some of the women say, yeah, that's exactly what we need. And some of the men absolutely groan and think, oh, boy, I got to stand up in some small group and spill my guts. And this is going to be embarrassing and awkward. Don't drag me to this, please. Yeah. They, they
3: think, could we schedule a root canal for that weekend <laughs> instead? Because that would be less painful. I remember, you remember Norman Schwarzkopf. You remember that? Oh, thing?
1: yes, absolutely. Storm and yeah, Norman. Okay, Mr.
3: Ch- yeah, he he led us into uh, into Desert Storm and Desert Shield, and and he said uh, the words that strike terror in the heart of every man is we need to talk when his wife says it. You know, so here's an army general not afraid of battle, but what his wife says we need to talk, and I think a lot of us w- when we look at our relationship and we think. Okay. Do we really want to work on this? And how painful is this going to be? And am I going to have to? Am I going to have to address issues? And can't we just leave well enough alone? I think a lot of us feel that way. And yet, at the same time, we look at our marriage and go, "Yeah, but it's 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 only vaguely satisfying." So here's what here's what couples have told us when they come to the getaway. They've said they expected it to be. More painful than it was. Uh, They had some great conversations that we set them up for, but they also had a chance to hear from speakers who are just real people with similar issues in marriage who can say, we've been through this, here's what we found, here's what helps, and there's a lot of laughing that goes on at the getaway, there's a lot of uh, opportunity to, to think carefully about marriage, and I'll tell you what, by Sunday, everybody's glad they came, and they're thinking, we need to do something like this for our marriage more often, because you're closer together at the end of the weekend than you were when you started.
1: And I think the irony here, Bob, too, is that oftentimes, and I think it's natural for many couples, as the busyness of life just happens, we wind up investing more time together talking about things like where we plan to take the kids on vacation, or what kind of retirement we'd like to have, then really talking about the most important relationship, aside from our relationship with God, of course, and that is talking about our marriage relationship. So this really, in in many respects, is an investment in the most important earthly relationship we'll ever have.
3: You're absolutely right. We spend more time and, and effort maintaining a car that is depreciating in value. And we'll one day be either sold or in a collision or we'll be done with it and we'll be on to the next car. We spend more time taking care of our lawn than we do taking care of our marriage. And so we think of the Weekend to Remember Marriage getaway as regular preventive marriage maintenance. In fact, I've talked to enough couples who have made this a regular, some of them a yearly event for them, to get away to to the Weekend to Remember. Uh, They they have seen this as kind of like, okay, we go to the dentist twice a year, we get a physical once a year, we do a marriage weekend once a year. Other couples will say, well, we can't do it that regularly, or we bury between the Weekend to Remember and other marriage enrichment things. But I tell you, if it's been three years since you've done anything purposeful or intentional, to strengthen your marriage relationship if it's been 3 years since the two of you have gotten away together for the weekend and I know kids and how the, the craziness of life and where are we going to get a babysitter for the whole weekend and all of this look th- there are ways to solve those problems there are people in your church there are parents or in-laws who would watch your kids you just need to make it a priority and and invest in your marriage and and don't let don't let the uh, the 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 weeds grow in your garden. You need some regular preventive maintenance here.
1: And as you point out, over a million and a half couples have seen the value in uh, investing some time, some of that routine maintenance. You mentioned, uh, you know, we spend more time uh, servicing our car. And But we recognize also that if we don't put the time in to do things like change the oil, rotate the tires, we know that someday that car may break down at the least opportune moment and really leave us stranded. Well, the same thing can be true of marriage relationships. If we don't take the time to invest in that marriage relationship, care for it and nurture it, it someday will break down as well. And we'd like to see that that, uh, possibility avoided. And certainly taking the time to invest in an event like this for you, for your spouse, for your marriage, can make all the difference in the world. Let me mention the dates again. It'll be April 12th, 13th, and 14th at the Hyatt Regency at the San Francisco Airport right there at Burlingame. And uh, you can get complete information, by the way, by going online to familylife.com. That's familylife.com. And, Bob, take a nanosecond, if you would, and just give us a snapshot of what couples can expect to experience over the course of the weekend.
3: So, Friday night, we're going to talk about the things that cause a marriage to drift, as we talked about, toward isolation, why it is that this is the natural uh, tendency in, marriage, in marriages. We're also going to talk about how you can uh, practice some, some basic communication skills first during that weekend, but things you can carry with you that will help you know how to communicate more effectively with one another. Saturday, we peel back and start to look at God's design and purpose for marriage in the, in the first place. He created it. What did he have in mind? What's his purpose for marriage? And then what's his, his plan for making a marriage work? Because he has a plan for how this is supposed to happen. And then the, the question of uh, where do we get the power to do it? Uh, how, how do we make all of this fit together? On Saturday afternoon, we talk about resolving conflict because conflict is common to all marriages. And then we talk about uh, intimacy, marital intimacy and sexuality and help couples who are experiencing challenges in those areas. Um, And then on Sunday morning, we divide up the men and the women. We do a, a special session for men and a special session for women. And uh, and then we bring it all back together, talking about the importance and the power of your legacy and thinking long-term about the impact that your marriage is going to have, not just on your children, but on your extended family, on your neighbors, on your community. Marriage is important by God's design, and so that's what we try to probe throughout the course of the weekend.
1: And that weekend, of course, uh, can be life changing, marriage saving, marriage improving for everyone that attends. Again, the Bay Area Conference, the Family Life Weekend to Remember, taking place on April the 12th, the weekend of April 12, 13, and 14 at the Hyatt Regency, there at the San Francisco Airport. In Burlingame. And to get complete information and to register online, simply go to familylife.com. That's familylife.com. Now, for KFAX listeners, at this very moment, we got a couple of goodies we're going to give away, courtesy of our friends at Family Life today. If you call right now, be caller number 11. You'll receive couples registration to Family Life Weekend to remember Marriage Getaway at the Hyatt Regency at the airport in Burlingame. Plus, you'll receive a copy of the book, Two Hearts. Praying as One by Dennis and Barbara Rainey. Caller number 12 will receive the couple's registration along with a copy of the book, Daily Encouragement for the Smart Step Family. Again, be caller number 11 or 12 right now at 888 That's 888 888- F-O-R-K-F-A-X and complete details and reservations of course for the upcoming Family Life Marriage Getaway taking place here the weekend to remember Marriage Getaway April 12, 13 and 14 at the Hyatt Regency San Francisco. Just log on to FamilyLife.com That's FamilyLife.com Our thanks to Bob Lapine, co-host of Family Life Today for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. <laughs>
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Tolerance. It's a term bantied about with great abandon these days, especially by those on the left. Liberals who wish for freedom of expression and understanding for all peoples of all persuasions, hawking all agendas. Eh, with the sole caveat that tolerance is tossed unceremoniously out the window when it comes to those deemed by the so-called tolerant left to be Intolerant, And by intolerant, they mean pretty much anyone who doesn't tout their party line or embrace their body politic. A new book out that gives us the inside story to this issue of an attempt by the liberal left to silence everyone else. The book is called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. Its author, well-known political pundit, news analyst, USA Today columnist, and Fox News contributor Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, let's talk a bit... About this attack on free speech, coming from kind of an unusual end of the political spectrum. I mean, aren't these the same people, the students of yesterday and the teachers of today, that began the free speech movement on the Berkeley campus in the 1960s?
4: Yes, exactly. And I, I call the people in the book the liberal left to distinguish them from what I consider just the average Democrat or even your average principal liberal, who still really holds firm to those ideas of tolerance and diversity and free speech that you were just referring to. Uh, and, and that's what makes I think what they're doing that much more troubling is because on the one hand they're, they still claim to value these things while at the same time they are using all sorts of different tactics to silence the debates, to say certain things, you know, certain debates are over, that we aren't allowed to talk about certain things anymore. And if you do talk about them, you will be labeled with some toxic moniker that's you know, going to make you radioactive, basically, to the rest of society. And, and
1: how do they live with themselves in the sense, and, and, and you've had a chance to deal with both ends of the political spectrum, both as a reporter and a news analyst. There's this sense, I think, that some of them are out there promoting the same kind of stereotypes that they themselves purport to hate.
4: Right. Well, I think that they are able to do it because they really do believe that what they're doing is a righteous act. They they believe that they have the capital T truth, that they know what is right, and that there really is nothing to debate and so that they don't they, they don't feel that there is a need to for example treat somebody who opposes same-sex marriage as anything other than a homophobe or a bigot and and so you know even though i i do support same-sex marriage i, I recognize that there are people who don't that are people of goodwill and that you know then that the best way to engage people is to um, persuasion uh you know rather than coercion rather than trying to silence them, and the liberal left doesn't see it that way. they really do believe that the righteous act is to just really sort of isolate that person from society by saying no. You know, you're, you're a homophobe, and uh, you know we don't we don't even need to talk to you about it.
1: Yeah, the irony is, if they believe so strongly in their position, you would think that the notion of civility and honesty in public discourse, in the end, would allow the, the quote-unquote truth to win out. But yet, they don't apparently see it that way, and I have to wonder if there is almost a sense of of compartmentalizing. Going on here, you, you resided inside of the Clinton administration as a Clinton appointee from '92 to '98. From that kind of uh, viewpoint, from the kind of the inside looking out, is there a lot of compartmentalization that goes on?
4: I don't, I, I don't think that they really feel a need to compartmentalize because, like I said, they really do believe that they believe so strongly. And what they're doing, that they they feel like that they're on the right, so-called right side of history, or the you know the right side of the issue, and and so that they, you know, there's, I, there's a, this example. This just happened last month of a uh, uh, Christina Hot Summer who's she's an AEI scholar, and she came, she went to Georgetown and Oberlin universities in the same month to speak on what she calls equity feminism. It's her. Version of feminism, which is different from liberal feminism, and you know she was treated almost like a terrorist coming to campus. It was, you know, she had to have security, and they had people there holding signs that they're trigger warning, so they were being triggered. You know, that this is going to cause them some sort of emotional distress and danger. And there were signs for a safe room where you could go and and be safe while she's, you know, on campus talking to the campus Republicans about her her vision of feminism and just treating treating differing ideas as actually dangerous you know that that's I think that that is what is it takes it away from just your basic intolerance of uh, i can't hear this that it's actually posing a danger and need, and and they try to get the speeches canceled and if they can't get the speeches canceled then they try to they're very disruptive um, or they try to delegitimize the speaker by making them seem like they're saying these horrific things when all they're doing is expressing a different opinion.
1: And the irony is that seems to be kind of the, out of the arsenal of, uh, of tools that they utilize seems to be some of the more popular approaches. Stigmatization, uh, delegitimizing, as you're saying, sometimes even going as far as, as dehumanizing. Uh, many of your colleagues, some of which um, as, as commentators that appear on other networks, I won't mention MSNBC, uh, make much game of this sport of dehumanizing those that have differing opinions.
4: Yeah, I mean, dehumanizing is a tactic you see in particular towards uh, conservative women or uh, non-white conservatives. So it's basically trying to turn them into, you know, non-meetings. non You don't even need to take them seriously. And with, with conservative women, they will do it through, you know, she's not really a woman. They don't speak for women. The only women who speak for women are pro-choice Democrats, um, that they are, you know, bush in a skirt. Uh, they're sort of these, you know, female impersonators, these are some of the the words that have been used to describe uh, conservative women, or they objectify them, which is another form of dehumanization, which actually, what is so noxious about this is that it's feminists who have came up with this theory that objectifying women is dehumanizing and it's actually very effective. It's a very effective way to, to make people not take a woman seriously. So if you focus obsessively on her body or her looks or what she's wearing, as they did with, for example, Sarah Palin, and turn her into a sex object, then voters start to you know, not see this person any longer as even a potentially serious person. They just see them as a sex object. And so these are the kind of tactics that they use, even though they say they stand
1: for women. Well, what I don't understand is, and maybe you can shed some light on this, why do mainstream liberals. Give give sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card to some of these commentators and, and so-called news reporters who, who use this kind of language. For example, you mentioned about uh, references to people like um, either Sarah Palin or uh, Michelle Bachman as, as bimbos. I think at one time didn't Ed Schultz even use that yeah. demeaning term uh, directed toward you. And, and, and mm-hmm. when it's done, the liberal left seems to look the other way. But can you imagine anyone on Fox News making a reference to, say, Hillary Clinton as the um, Democrat candidate bimbo right. and getting away with it?
4: No, of course not. I mean, there's a double standard. And at, at some they have started to be shamed by it. And so they have some groups that started to recognize that they have to condemn, uh, condemn this when it's happening to conservative women. Now they always kind of do it in this grudging way, you know, like, oh, yeah, I guess we have to. You know we have to stand up for this but you know they're not but but for a long time they didn't and a lot of them were participants in it that's the thing that a lot of the people who were making the misogynist attacks against sarah palin were self-described feminists so it, you know it, it, it's and so it's, it's sometimes it's them and then the other times it's sitting by you know while keith Olbermann while he was you know, sitting atop his perch at M S N B C is doing it, whether it's Chris Matthews that is doing it. Uh they you know, they just sit there and they, they don't they they just either ignore it or they, um, you know, maybe will find something to complain about now and then, but it doesn't cause the full scale hysteria that you see, like what you saw what happened when when Rush Limbaugh had, you know had uh called Sandra Fluck, you know, a slut, which he He apologized – well, actually, I don't know if he apologized, but he was treated as if he had to, uh, you know, lose his show over that, right? You know, and this is one incident versus continuous incidents of liberal men that are completely ignored.
1: What's ironic about this is just how insidious and widespread all this is. As you delineate inside the pages of the silencing, we, we, we find this approach to, um, again, just the, 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 the closing down of civil dialogue. The stigmatization, dehumanization of the opposition, so to speak, that occurs not only on college campuses, as we referred to a moment ago, it's taking place uh, certainly within uh, politics, within the, the the Democrat Party. We see it taking place in in the news arena. It's almost as if there's there's no free. Um, antagonizing zone where actual discourse and exchange of, of ideas can take place anymore without fearful of of suddenly coming under attack or having even your very legitimacy being questioned
4: right i think mean, that's exactly right um yeah and i just did want to clarify that i just checked that rush limbaugh did apologize to her which is like one extra step that we don't often see by the, the men uh you know on the left who just are doing this with in, impunity and are never are never criticized so, you know, I do think that um, the delegitimizing that's going on, which I get into in the, in the book so much, is just is such an effective tactic to, uh, to avoid debate, uh, to, to, to not have to, you know, somebody says something and you don't have to engage them on what they actually said. Uh, instead, you can just pick out something about them that other people are not going to like. Other people do not want to listen Somebody who who they've been convinced is a racist. They do not want to listen to somebody who they've convinced have been convinced that is, an, is an Islamophobe or you know or a rape denier, as they call the people who question the campus rape statistics. And it's just kind. Of, they are conversation enders, not conversation starters. It's not encouraging robust debate uh and, and which is really how we get knowledge in society. Uh instead it's encouraging really us just accepting what a certain group of people have decided is the truth and we're not supposed to question it.
1: Kirsten Powers, our guest today on this edition of Lifeline, we're talking about her new book called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. The new book, by the way, just released by Regnery Press, available at Bay Area bookstores as well as through Amazon.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation with Kirsten Powers as this edition of Lifeline continues. Welcome back to Lifeline. Our special guest today, well, you certainly know her as a political pundit, news analyst, USA Today columnist, and Fox News contributor, and now a new book called The Silencing. We're visiting today with Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, you relay an example of how insidious all of this is taking place on college campuses in terms of almost uh, sort of grooming students into this sense of, um, of intolerance uh, by talking about um, Lafayette College and, and their So called bias response team. Uh, Share this example with listeners from the book, if you would, and then give us a sense of just how widespread is this mentality across campuses in America today.
4: Well, these kinds of things are starting to crop up, and I expect them to probably spread, which is the idea that, you know, if something on campus happens that you feel was somehow offensive, you know, some sort of bias, whether it's a racial bias or, you know, gender bias or something, that you can report people for it, uh, and that it's treated as if it's uh, almost like a bodily harm that has occurred to you. And this is something that comes up throughout the, the book in, in, in various stories, which was particularly alarming to me, which was that you know taking offense or even just disagreement or having to see something or hear something that you don't like is really just often described as a violent that That's the, the language that's used. I, I talk about the professor at the University of California Santa Barbara who physically attacked a pro-life student uh, who was part of a peaceful demonstration and told the police officer when she was arrested that she was quote-unquote triggered, which is a word that comes up throughout the book, uh, that, that she was triggered by having to encounter this peaceful demonstration, that she shouldn't have to see something like this, that it's, you know, this is supposed to be her safe space. This is a professor, um, you know, who doesn't want to have to encounter a view that she doesn't like and that and treats it just the expression of the view as an attack. And so this is the mentality that we have that is spreading, which is which is that, you know, in that case, that's an outlier. Usually it doesn't involve somebody physically attacking somebody. The response, but there, there are other ways that the person is then silenced because, you know, they say, well, I just, like, I can't, you know, I just, it, it was. I can't. I can't see that. I can't hear that. I can't. It's, it's, you know, the irony I mean? is that you, when you breakdown.
1: when you put this in context for those of us that are old enough to remember, a, a lot of the new liberalism today, whether it be on college campuses or in the mainstream media, sounds like a lot of the old McCarthyism of the nineteen fifties.
4: Yes. Yeah. Very similar. And it's there's yeah. There's this aspect of who you talk to also uh, is is indicative of. Of who you are versus what you say or what you think, and I experienced this actually when my book came out. When uh, I gave excerpts of the book to various publications, including the Daily Beast, which I write for and is considered a, a, you know left of center, but also to a publication at the Heritage Foundation, which is conservative. And because of that, I had all these, liberal lefties coming after me, saying that I you know because I had allowed the Heritage Foundation to run an excerpt that I, you know, that that just proved that I was a right-wing hack and my book was huh. somehow backed by the Heritage Foundation. Some, suddenly you
1: know I mean? you're a shill, shill for the left, or for the right, right rather.
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, but never mind that, like, I ran excerpts in the Daily Beast. You know what I mean? It doesn't it's just, they, they just look for some kind of relationship that they can use to prove that you're a secret you know, closet conservative. I have a bunch of examples in the book of how they really use this against journalists. To scare journalists to into not pursuing stories because they will be accused of being closet conservatives because they are investigating the Obama administration or they're investigating Republicans. But if they investigate, uh, you know, the the right the the right people, then uh, then they're gonna if they, if they investigate Republicans, they're gonna be fine. But if they investigate Democrats, they're not. So you'll have people like Cheryl Atkinson, who award-winning investigations of both parties. But all you'll hear about from the Liberal Left is how she investigated the Obama administration and therefore she's this she's literally this partisan, uh, you know, conservative hack.
1: You know the irony is this agenda though just bubbles so 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 uh, close to the surface it's it's unbelievable. I mean, for example, uh, Chris Hayes recently did what he called a Hillary Clinton study guide for millennials, where he touted all the wonderful things that she apparently had done before most of them, quite frankly, had ever even been born. And yet, can you imagine if, say, Fox News attempted to do a, a new millennials guide to Ben Carson? What 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 kind of response you would see from the left?
4: Right. Well that's total level standard. I mean you can't they're, they're, you know, there's this idea that uh, you know, they spent all this time, I have a whole chapter on it, trying to delegitimize Fox News. Uh, the White House did, saying, you know, they're not a real news organization and uh and and telling other news organizations that they shouldn't treat them as real news organizations. And meanwhile M S N B C is doing this times a million, you know, and and I'm not. I actually, I think MSNBC is free to do that. I don't. And if and if, the, and if George Bush had ever come out and said they weren't legitimate, I would have been the first person to defend them. You know, I don't. I think that they they're they're, they're free to you know have, have whatever kind of program they want to have, and uh and I and I don't think that that means that you know if Chris Hayes does something on one show that. Uh, you know, a reporter or a host from another show is somehow held accountable for that, right? I mean, like, the same way, like, they try to merge everything at Fox together. It's like, well, because there's Sean Hannity, then that means that Brett Baer can't be trusted. Well, those two things have nothing to do with each other. You know, they're completely different shows. and um, And one is an expressly an opinion show. And so, yeah, there's an absolute double standard where you had Obama administration officials leaving and going to work for MSNBC after the same people who said that Fox was not a legitimate news organization.
1: Help us understand something here. Uh, how much of this, in your opinion, is is just based on that sense of unfamiliarity breeding contempt? In other words, that it's easy to either dislike or hate what you don't know or don't understand. So many people, particularly for the the, the political world inside the Beltway, don't have an opportunity to really get to know "quote unquote" the enemy or the other side. And so, as a result, because of that that sense of ignorance, we'll call it uh, that 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 they sort of have this, this this deepening, abiding sense of acrimony shown toward those who don't share the same
4: opinion. Yeah, yeah, I think that there's I, I, there's definitely an element of that that's very hard to sustain these, the, the, these ideas, for example, that every single person who opposes same-sex marriage is a homophobe if you actually have friends or people that you're opposed to who have sincere religious beliefs that lead them to oppose same-sex marriage and and you can see you know that they they aren't homophobes i'm not saying that the person's never a homophobe but i'm just saying that that's you know that that at least in my experience the people that i know that that's not what's driving them what's driving them is a religious belief so i do think there is that um but i I don't the the problem with the liberal left is they really aren't interested in, in knowing people who are different than them and they because they are so convinced that they are right, that they it just does not seem to have occurred to them that, uh, that they could be wrong. But, you know, I used to be pretty closed minded and I was definitely, you know, I'd worked in the Clinton administration, Democratic politics, very liberal family, and, uh, I had a lot of these, these ideas as well that I had it all figured out. And basically working at Fox News and, and then later in life, conversion to Christianity where I started being around obviously a lot of Christians and more conservatives, I, you know, it did slowly break down my my prejudices. Frankly, I mean they were prejudices uh, where I could, you know I didn't necessarily change my political views, but I was able to see oh you know there is a debate to be had here, uh, there are things to talk about, and, and these are legitimate views. They're just different than mine.
1: So at the end of the day, while it's it's often kind of surprising to see how closed-minded so many so-called open-minded liberals really are, there is hope. And, 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 and I think sometimes the opportunity to the degree to which it's possible – and I'm just thinking about people that are engaged in the day-to-day business of going about uh, their affairs – to engage with people mm-hmm. in a loving, legitimate, intellectual fashion – Concerning the issues of the day, not with heated exchange and raised voices, but just just an, an open-minded exchange of ideas can sometimes eventually bring people around to another point of view.
4: I think so, yeah. It's, it's often slow, so I think people get discouraged. Uh, you know, I think it's not it's not like you're going to meet somebody one time and that's going to happen. But I do think over time and I've had a lot of friends tell me that, it's. you know, knowing me also has changed their views on some things or even, you know, they have their their ideas about what a liberal is like or what a liberal thinks. And, and you know, and so I think, you know, it's been beneficial in both directions.
1: Well, the book certainly is very engaging in helping us to not only better understand what's taking place here, the dynamic between the two sides, so to speak, but also, I think, uh, uh, gives us a sense of hope that we can engage in some dialogue and eventually see some change. Kristen Powers, the book is called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech, the book published by Regnery Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. And, of course, Regnery Press, a part of the company that owns this fine radio station.